This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Today's Encore performance takes us back 14 years to 2008. It's somewhat apropos for today's program after our talk last week with James DiEugenio. At the time we recorded this program, back in 08, we, I think all of us had a, a more optimistic view of data and how it would be transmitted across the Internet. We've seen in the years to come that a lot of bad data has crowded out good. But we're grateful for the fact that back then, author Darren Miller set out to sort out various conspiracy websites that were on the Internet and try and establish which ones were good and which ones were not so good. So without too much further ado, this is what we had to say back on show number 329. When we interviewed John Dean a few years ago, he told us he did not believe in conspiracy theories, except for those that were real. And that's the problem, isn't it? Deciding what is real and what data is sound. We know in some cases that events and actions have been covered up. That's why there's investigative journalists. The Internet allows us to access information like never before, but conflicting websites and the topics described as conspiracy theories could stand some sorting out. Enter our guest today, Darren W. Miller. He's worked as a reporter and editor for newspapers on the East Coast, and along with co-author James Broderick, has compiled a volume titled Web of Conspiracy, a guide to conspiracy theory sites on the Internet. The two men previously co-authored Consider the Source, a critical guide to 100 prominent news and information sites on the web. Their emphasis has been to question everything while not falling for anything. On this show, we've addressed, at one point or another, seven of the topics examined in Web of Conspiracy. Some we found legitimate, some not. But we found the book useful regardless of the topic, and we're happy to be able to say, Darren Miller, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thanks for having me on. Uh, now, at the start, some listeners I know are going to be near computers, and you yourself have a website for the book. That would be at www.thereporterswell.com. Some people may want to go there as we chat. Yes, and we also do have uh, another website that we just started uh, specifically for this book, webofconspiracy.net. So both of those uh, will provide a lot of information for your listeners. Well, of course, conspiracy theory, the very term connotes to some people that the topic in question is maybe suitable for crackpot discussions, and, uh, and that may be true about a few of the topics you mentioned in the book, but I think we want to uh, start out by emphasizing that, you know, in many instances, you and Mr. Braddock are quite sympathetic to the idea that a conspiracy has worked to, to hide the real story about the, this thing or that. Right. I mean, one, one of the things that, that we um, thought about while we're researching these is, is, and as you mentioned, there are some real conspiracies that have taken place in, in, in American history and world history. I mean, some of the things that come up off the top of my head are you know, things like Watergate, uh, the Iran-Contra affair, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident. These are real conspiracies. They've been proved they're, they're no longer theories. Although at the time, many people were accusing people like Woodward and Bernstein of, of being conspiracy theorists. And while there's certainly... Um, so-called kooks out there, which, you know, a lot of times mainstream labels conspiracy theorists as such, as the uh, tinfoil hat crowd, you know, waiting in their parents' basement, logging onto the Internet, waiting for the mothership. Um, <laughs> well, there certainly are those people out there. What we were surprised to find as we researched the, 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 the material for Web of Conspiracy is how many really um, credible and credentialed uh, people, professionals, experts in their fields, um, 
are really taking up this the the, the investigation into a lot of these official explanations uh, across the spectrum. Uh, no matter what the topic, it seems that there are always um, websites and evidence put forward on the web by by credible people, by professionals. Whether or not you agree with them is another thing, but it's certainly. Um, it's no longer as easy, I don't think, to dismiss people as uh, kooks just because they are looking at evidence in a different way than the official version. Well, let's begin with one of the most scholarly conspiracy theories and debates that's, uh, that you find on the Internet. It's also maybe one of the least political. That would be the Shakespeare authorship question. There's quite a lively debate on websites about that one. Oh, yeah, and that's, that's one that really really dates back centuries now um, and, and has been sort of controversial in some ways for, for a long time, and it's one that, as writers, we're sort of interested in um, naturally, but it's, it's really a fascinating topic, and, and it really comes down to sort of two sides in Stratfordians being those people who believe that Will Shakespeare, the guy that we all know as the, as the writer of the great plays and sonnets uh, from Stratford-upon-Avon, those people believe that he was the writer. Um, but there are others, anti-Stratfordians, who say that the biography, what we know of Will Shakespeare, uh, which is very little, um, we, we, we don't know a whole lot about his life. There's a lot of pieces of the puzzle missing. But we do, what we do know doesn't really match up to the writer of these great works, arguably the greatest literature ever, um, filled with so many references to arcane knowledge, um, some of it based on, on previous literature um, not yet translated into English, stuff about the law, about medicine, and aristocratic life. And what we know of Will Shakespeare is that um, he, he, he really didn't have a, a full education. Some people say he went to grammar school and that's it, and some people don't even say that. Some argue that he was perhaps illiterate. Uh, we have six surviving signatures in his hand, um, all of which were spelled. He spelled his name differently. And on other occasions, he uh, signed his name with an X. Um, and, and then there are other things like his will, which doesn't mention any sort of literary possessions, no books of any kind. Others say that he didn't even teach his own daughters how to read or write, which doesn't really match up to, to, to what we know about the works. Right, right. Well, we enjoyed talking to Mark Anderson a few years back on this program. He has a website making the case for the Earl of Oxford. And I note in your book you, you cited his website because I guess it has uh, nine downloadable audio files making a good case for Oxford. Oh yeah, and that, you know there are there are tons of candidates, but but uh, the, uh, Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, uh, who, who obviously Mark Anderson wrote about in a great book, uh, have to have to say that his his work Shakespeare by another name is a, is a great book, and we relied on it as part of our research. And his website is uh, is really terrific. It also has uh, besides the audio podcast, it has a great uh, Google interactive map where you can sort of trace the life of of Shakespeare and uh, Oxford. And the case is pretty strong for Oxford in that his, his biography, his life, really does match up with the works. I mean, in some cases, people even argue that Hamlet is really, if, if believed to be written by Edward de Vere, Oxford, um, really seems autobiographical when you look at the, the evidence of, of the writer's life and the, and the story of Hamlet. So, um, you know, the argument is that um, Oxford had to protect his name, protect himself because it was... Um, frowned upon by the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, because uh, it was sort of uh, the theater wasn't exactly uh, wasn't exactly encouraged because it was sort of looked down and frowned upon. So he needed to have a front man or a pseudonym to protect his own his own his own life, really. 
Um, so so there's, a, there's a strong case developing, I think, because of people like Mark Anderson and, and there's some others. Uh, Richard Whalen is another great Oxfordian. And there's just a ton of stuff now on the web with these different groups and associations dedicated to, to making the case for Oxford and some other candidates as well. Well, coming forward in time, uh, a topic uh, that you examined and we've talked about on this show before was the idea that the moon landings might have been a hoax. Let, let's talk about that a little bit. That's really one of the most popular, I would think, and uh, probably mostly because it has that sort of sci-fi element, and, it, and it's one of these theories that have been around for a long time. Um, and, and often uh, people um, sort of proposing the idea that uh, the moon landing was a, was, was, ho- was a hoax, was a fake, was filmed in a studio, point to things like um, some of the photographs with uh, no stars visible or that the flag was waving, um, and, and there, obviously there's no breeze in space. So um, those are some of the things that, that, that conspiracy theorists point to. But as we indicate in the book, the, the other side, the skeptics, point, point out that it's it, photographically and technologically it's difficult uh, due to aperture settings and other details like that to actually capture stars um, when, when photographing a bright foreground. And um, that the flag was intentionally placed in that position so you can actually see it in some of the photographs that it wasn't actually waving. So it's an interesting debate back and forth, but it seems like there's, a, there, there's some solid evidence, although conspiracy theorists make some, some, raise some good questions in, in the fact that why haven't we back, been back in 35 years? Um, some, they argue that uh, because of JFK's promise to get us to the moon before, before some other countries and because of the Cold War and that thing that we couldn't fail on the world stage so that so we didn't fail. We, we, we didn't have the technology to get to the moon, but we filmed it in a studio. So it's, it's one of those ones that I don't think will ever die. It's one of the most popular conspiracy theories, but it, it's an interesting back and forth, and there's a ton of stuff on the web uh, when it comes to this on both sides. Uh, those who believe we, we, we went to the moon and actually landed on the moon, and those who, who don't think we did. Now, I do want to say I was actually using your book not 60 minutes ago trying to run down the one thing on that that was still sticking in my mind, the fact that the camera on the moon does track after the module when it, when it basically lifts off the surface. I assume that was done by some sort of pre-programmed thing, but I've never seen any data on it. Again, it's, some people will argue, uh, people who, who don't believe in the conspiracy theory say it would have been more difficult to actually film the supposed moon landing in a studio than it would actually <laughs> to go to the moon. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I think one of the best chapters in your book, in my opinion, is the question of what happened to TWA Flight 800, and you really do provide the reader with some excellent websites on, on that topic. And, and the TWA Flight 800 is, is a perfect example of one of these conspiracy theories um, where there are, there are really a lot of professionals, a lot of experts, whether it's military, former military pilots or uh, commercial aviation pilots and, and former commanders in the U.S. Air Force that all believe that it was not just an accident. And the case that the government made that it was a, a spark in the center wing fuel tank um, causing vapors to ignite and explode um, doesn't add up for a lot of these people, a lot of these experts. Um, it just doesn't, doesn't really make sense when you look at the details of it. And add to that, um, over, over 700 or so witnesses who said they saw some streak of light coming from the horizon, basically describing it in similar terms and believing that it was a missile. And the, the investigators um, really kind of dismissed all these witnesses, um, saying that they actually saw something else. They actually saw 
um, the tail of the plane after a broken half climbed several hundred feet, and that's what they saw, which doesn't really match up to seeing something from the horizon and seeing something, you know, climb a few extra hundred feet. And then there are other experts who say that that so-called zoom climb couldn't even couldn't even happen. That yeah. physically, uh, you know, it just wasn't possible in the realm of physics. So it, it's one of those ones where where I think if you look at the evidence. And you know, some some people go so far as to say it was actually a cover-up on the part of the government. Others say they just didn't know what they were talking about, that they didn't have the right expertise, and, and that there was a there was just a lack of, uh, of a real investigation. And the idea of dismissing the 700 or so witnesses really bothers some people. And there are others. There's a former military uh, helicopter pilot in Vietnam who was actually flying uh, a National Guard helicopter at the time off the coast of Long Island who said, he saw it right in front of him, and he saw a missile hit the plane. And and you'll see him in a lot of these documentaries and videos on the on these websites, sort of explaining what he saw and and how the CIA and the FBI and the, the different investigative units never really um, took his statement. And uh, that happened to a lot of people in this case. The book is Web of Conspiracy, a guide to conspiracy theory sites on the internet. We're speaking with author Darren W. Miller. Speaking about, you know, flying objects, uh, one of your chapters combined both the Roswell incident and Area 51. That's, in fact, your first chapter. I want to talk a little bit about each. Everyone seems to agree that some things uh, are flying in and out of this top-secret area of Area 51. Uh, but uh, let's talk about that one first. Sure, and I think this is one of those instances where, where government secrecy really spawns and uh, incites conspiracy theories. Um, you know, there's there's just tremendous secrecy revolving Area 51, which is this vast area of 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 desert um, that's heavily protected. I mean, there's there's even you know there's tons of no trespassing warnings and shoot to kill orders and so forth, which naturally raises people's suspicions about what's going on there. Now, skeptics of the UFO and alien theories will say that it's just you know they're developing uh, secret military. Uh, aircraft and weaponry and things like of uh, that nature that are highly classified and protected. Others see it more as sort of a nefarious operation of uh, reverse engineering of some alien aircraft that have landed and have been uh, recovered by the military and using it for their own, you know, for their own knowledge and development of of their own aircraft. So, I think it's really an instance. I think where where again government secrecy really fires up the conspiracy theorists. You know, what really goes on there, I don't think anyone has, has any clue other than the people that probably work there. Right. Um, and if we'll, I don't think we'll ever really get a, get a, get, a, get an answer, uh, just because e- even investigative work is, is on the part of journalists is really impossible to do when it comes to Area 51. Well, Darren, I've looked at the whole Roswell thing. I've never been able to be satisfied that, it, that, that, that there's any sort of alien saucer that crashed there. But, but I know that, incredibly, the Air Force really did put out a press release initially claiming that was what happened, which a lot of people just find astonishing. Right. The, for the initial press release from the, from the uh, U.S. Army airfield there in, in, in the Roswell area um, called it a flying disc right <laughs> off the bat there. Initial yeah. press release as they recovered the debris. And then also um, another interesting component of that Initial press releases that the um, one of the majors of that of that Army airfield who was out in the ranch in Roswell recovering some of this debris was quoted to say that it was nothing made of this earth. The things he he recovered were just nothing made of this earth. And his son has gone on to uh, to write a couple of books describing what what his father had discovered there, um, and argues that his father was silenced by the military. 
but in days in the days following after this sort of hubbub about a flying disc and their press release, uh, another press release was issued by the military, and this time calling it a weather balloon. And for the next 30 years or so, um, there wasn't much talk about Roswell or what happened there. It was sort of almost accepted as a weather balloon. But then, um, you know, obviously, several decades later, um, the whole firestorm started again revolving around Roswell, and partly because, as you know, in recent decades, there have been thousands and thousands of UFO sightings by credible people, you know, military pilots, again, you know, commercial airline pilots, and, and people that you wouldn't call coots who have seen unidentified flying objects. And uh, there are obviously tons of photos and video of this on the web of people capturing these things in the sky that are often dismissed as anomalies by, by official sources. So uh, I think that's one of the reasons why the whole Roswell incident really has sort of gained momentum on the web. Well, you know, uh, I learned a lot reading your book. One thing that I, I never uh, looked into and I knew almost nothing about was the story of Princess Di's fatal accident. And you note there really are some bizarre occurrences related to that, uh, the fact that her ambulance pulled over for a while on the way to the hospital. I mean, uh, I'm a physician, and I found that explanation very uh, unconvincing. Right. The argument, uh, according to official, the official explanation is that they stopped because the ambulance uh, had requested to do so because her blood pressure was dangerously uh, dropping to low levels. Yeah, you don't stop the car for that. <laughs> Especially when you're only four miles from a hospital where a group of the best French medical uh, team is, is assembled to try to save the life of the Princess of Wales. It doesn't make sense to stop on the side of the road. And there are some images and photographs that allege uh, some French officials talking on a cell phone um, outside the ambulance uh, at the time. The other thing that they point to is the route that the ambulance took. What should have been only a 10-minute or so drive turned into be a 45-minute drive to the, to the hospital, including the stop which doesn't really make sense. There are just a ton of questions in the Princess Di case that make it difficult to, to say that that case is closed by any means. A lot of the uh, first witnesses on the scene of the crash say that uh, Princess Di didn't appear all that injured. Um, she was conscious and alert, and uh, they didn't see any real external injuries, you know, no, no real blood, and that, that her um, efforts to get to the ambulance didn't seem like the, the, the injuries were life-threatening at the time. Well, that's one I'm going to I'm going to trace out using your book, I think, because it is very curious. Um, we, I think we have to talk about what is arguably the most preposterous conspiracy theory of all time. You talk about it in the book, the matter of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Can you talk a bit about that one? Oh, sure. That's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a document that is often used to allege that uh, there was a, a plot by um, the elders of, of the Jewish community to take over the world, both uh, politically, financially, in the banking world, and 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 the media. Uh, I think since since those rumors have uh, abounded over the last many years, it has pretty roundly been been proven to be a hoax. That it was actually these, this document, the protocols, was actually written by a Russian agent at the time to, to stir fears and, and anti-Semitic uh, sentiments throughout the world. And unfortunately, even though it's been proven as a hoax, and Hitler uh, uh, certainly used the protocols to help him with his agenda, uh, and a lot of Muslim countries today are using protocols to stir fears that uh, of Jewish world domination. But it's it's pretty clearly been 
been refuted as a hoax, and it's been republished in many places in an attempt to give it credibility and present it as a real document. But um, it's pretty clearly been proven that it's been written by this, was written originally by this one man, I believe it was in 1895. It's certainly clear that it's most likely a hoax, but, uh, but uh, as the web will show, there are many people who use it to, uh, to further their own arguments, uh, often you know, filled with uh, hateful messages. So it's, it's a pretty wild exploration of the web when you get into the protocols. Yeah, that, that's from the, I think, the tinfoil hat uh, department. But, uh... When it comes to the protocols, there's really no doubt that it was a hoax. Well, perhaps the hottest topic that you talk about in the book, uh, and you have a lot of websites you mention about it, it regards the question of what happened on September 11, 2001. Let's talk a little bit about that, that question of conspiracy and where to get some data. Sure. And the, 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 the 9-11 conspiracy theories abound. I mean, there are several different camps that people fall into when it comes to this conspiracy theory, and it's really sort of the, the JFK assassination of our generation. I mean, it's... And, and the other thing that's interesting about 9-11 is that it really, it, it happened, it's really one of the only conspiracies that happened in the age of the Internet. I mean, everything else is sort of retrospective. This happened sort of in real time as the Internet is, is flourishing. So it's interesting to see how there's so much multimedia, whether, you know, audio or videos of the, of the buildings collapsing, collapsing and, and all kinds of other documentation. So that's one of, one of the interesting aspects of, of 9-11. But there's really sort of two camps when it comes to the conspiracy theorists. Um, one group sort of believes that there was foreknowledge of the attacks and that they were allowed to happen for uh, political reasons so that the Bush administration and the U.S. government could uh, achieve their agenda, which echoes the arguments about Pearl Harbor. Uh, the, same, the same argument is, is often made and it's a chapter in our book by, by those who believe that FDR um, allowed Pearl Harbor to attack so that the, uh, he could find a way for the United States to get involved in what was then the European War and would become World War II. And then the other camp for 9-11 is really those who believe it was an inside job, that it was actually orchestrated by the United States government, the Bush administration, and the military-industrial complex for obviously pretty sinister reasons. But um, that, that, that's, that's really the, the, the two arguments that conspiracy theorists make when it comes to 9-11. And there are, there are millions and millions of websites uh, dedicated to this stuff. So obviously, some of the ones we tried to focus on were some that, that offered some more reasonable arguments. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the conspiracy theories of 9-11 really revolve around uh, World Trade Center building number seven. That's sort of the linchpin. You know, this building wasn't hit by an airplane and still collapsed several hours after the the whole day sort of started in the morning, and it collapsed at about 5.30. And a lot of conspiracy theorists see this as a sort of clear, uh, controlled demolition. And they really use that to sort of further their, their argument. Yeah, I agree, Darren. That If you look on the web, and you, people, you have pictures in the book, people can find some of the websites you, you direct people to. That building looks like a, a controlled demolition, but a friend of mine who is investigating in a professional capacity he tells me he's convinced it was brought down by fires uh, after being damaged, so I, I have to I kind of scratch my head at that one. Right, and there was a recent report by the National Institute of uh, Standards and Technology, and this was the official report, that it was brought down by, by fires and not by um, any kind of explosives or, or some others. It's sort of the official explanation early in the, in the whole uh, investigation was that it was there was diesel fuel tanks that caused explosions and so forth, and they ruled that out too, and said it was basically... Uh, debris falling on this building, 
causing fires and weakened the steel uh, and brought down the building. Conspiracy theorists would argue that this is the first time in history that a steel-framed building was brought down by a local fire. Um, you know, there are a lot of skyscrapers that have caught on fire before, and they've never collapsed in such a way. And they also, uh, conspiracy theorists, point to some of the offices that were housed in Building Number 7. Um, everything from Mayor Giuliani's uh, emergency response office to uh, FBI offices and, and all other kinds of uh, highly uh, sensitive government agencies. So they, they sort of take the leap and say, you know, that that's one of the reasons why it was uh, brought down. Well, we are we are we're running out of time, but but before we go, I think we have to have to uh, mention the fact, uh, talking of conspiracy theories, that eighty five percent of the American public believes that Jack Kennedy was the victim of a conspiracy, and you certainly uh, don't shy away from that in the book. Yeah, the, the JFK assassination is really the the eight hundred pound gorilla of conspiracy theories, <laughs> and it's one that's not going to go away. As you mentioned, there uh, there majority of people believe that the Warren Commission uh, fails to to get it right. Uh, and that, that that the lone gunman theory just doesn't add up. And when you look at some of the uh, some of the evidence for why that doesn't add up, is there are a lot of uh, ballistics experts who have recently said that and, and tested the Italian rifle that was supposedly used by Oswald and said that there's no way that the three shots he fired within a certain amount of time would have been possible. That in order to reload and, and fire would have took a much longer time. So that there had to be additional gunmen. Um, and I think it's, the JFK is really fascinating because it's one that's received so much popular attention, whether, whether it's Oliver Stone's movie or, you know, endless documentaries on the History Channel and so forth, that it's really captured the attention of the public. And I think for that reason, it probably won't go away anytime soon. But as you mentioned, I think that there's, there's more convincing evidence uh, that there was a, a larger plot, whatever that may be, I think still remains unknown. But that there was certainly, the, the lone gunman theory tends not to hold up when you analyze the evidence. The book is Web of Conspiracy, a guide to conspiracy theory sites on the Internet. And it's, it's a very interesting book and a fine resource for anyone who wants to take a look at uh, any of these issues uh, of conspiracies, and I note especially those that are real. So, uh, Darren Miller, well, thank you very much for speaking with us. Well, thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. All right, we need to take a short break. I, I do note that the outro music Mr. McVillan used was something called I Think I'm Paranoid. Well, I think it's apt to close this segment by noting something we were taught back in medical school, which was that, uh, well, it was a joke line, it was a throwaway line in the psych rotation, which was just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. This is Radio Parallax. Let's, let's take a short break. Well, I think I'm paranoid.